Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Um, I'm doing I'm doing great. I'm doing much better than the last time we talked. Because what, Bernard what, Bernalucci what hasn't uh Oh right. Yes. Uh, you know, talked anymore. Which actually isn't true. He has talked more and kind yeah. of uh didn't really make things any better, I guess. He walked things back a little bit, saying that like, you know, his he said, no, no, what I mean to say is what what I sprang on her was the whole concept of, like, butter, yeah. which I thought she might find demeaning, and she, in fact, did. Uh, yeah. So it's just like, eh. But at the same time, everybody involved did does acknowledge that she, that also sprung on her was this idea of, uh, hey, just, uh, I'm going to, like, physically assault you All in right. a minute. So, okay, action. Yeah yeah uh see now you're putting me in bad mood again i'm sorry how are you i'm doing okay uh i finished my my quarter i think i i got an okay so i think i got an a in my ta training class i got an a in my film criticism class who knows how i'm gonna do in my text and context class it all depends on how she receives uh my paper it all depends on this episode it all oh boy yes she told me she was gonna listen We've been talking. Oh, boy. That's Sh- unfortunate. Cheryl and I. Is it, yes. Is her name Cheryl? It is not. <laughs> it is Ellen. What if it had been? What is it? Ellen. Ellen. That's a good name. But, uh, name. yeah, it's, it's, uh, writing this paper. It's the longest paper I've ever written. 24 pages, uh, double spaced, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, it was just like really, it took a lot out of me, but here's what I discovered is like, if you pick a good topic, it's going to take a lot out of you to write about it, but you're always interested to say the next thing you're going to say. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because I talked to some of my fellow students about their topic and they said like, you know, I just, uh, like I picked something that I felt I could get the pages out of. And it's like, that's, uh, don't get me wrong. I did that back at Columbia sometimes, but, yeah. uh, there's a, a world of difference. Yeah. Um, my topic, if we want to, if we want to abandon the planned top of the show discussion so that I can briefly discuss my topic, I'm perfectly fine with that. No, let's talk. Cause now you got me wanting to talk. Do it. Okay. Okay. Uh, my topic we, was we, basically, yeah, just, we talked about it on the movie journal, not this okay. week's, but the previous movie journal, what's your topic? Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, the, the emergence of Christian drama as its own genre. And I spend more time in the paper than I anticipated talking about how it is important for critics to recognize a genre when they see one. Uh, and we don't always see one as it's emerging, but I think being open to that is good because then you start to know how to approach it. And in my paper, I actually reference uh, a 1980 episode of Siskel and Ebert at the time it was called sneak previews in which they talk about what they called women in danger movies, what we now call slasher movies. Oh, okay. Um, and talking about like how horrible these things are and all that. And one thing they say, Ebert says this fascinating thing that I actually, that I quoted in my paper where he said, cause he went to see, you know, they review these, but they actually didn't get any screenings for it. So like they just go yeah. pay for them. And he said, I felt like I was a, that I was a spy in the dark, that I was in the midst of a bunch of people that were not at all 
like me and they love these movies. And I thought like, well, that's often the first indicator of a genre, um, based on Hmm. some of the genre theory stuff that I was reading. Um, it's like the audience knows it first. They might not say it's a genre, but they know it. That's fascinating. It's really interesting. So meanwhile, critics are too busy creating genres out of thin air, like mumblecore. <laughs> yeah. I'm still sore about mumblecore, not about the movies themselves because there's no such thing as mumblecore. Sure. Uh, it's a thing critics made up to dismiss, uh, an aesthetic that evolved naturally out of the available technology. Um, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, just like all movies. Now, again, genre theory, any number of things do uh, influence the the uh, emergence of a genre, including limitations uh, of technology and budget. But then there has to be more than that. Like, okay, so, right. like, so I'm still in the clear. To, I, yeah, I think so. To to say Mumblecore never really existed. Yeah, I don't okay. Think so. um, all right. Well, that was a good topic. Show topic. I guess we. I guess we can just go ahead and we move can, on. I'm fine to. Uh, we to want, just move on to just do. Let's pay some bills. Do you actually want to? I was. I was <laughs> no, fine to. Get, I, no, I'm. I'm teasing you okay. because you want to talk about. Um, you want to gloat about how well you're doing in the fantasy awards season. I'm not doing well. Oh, I should say. Uh, everyone is doing well compared to me. There's two reasons I don't want to talk about our fantasy award season. Thing. Oh, okay. One, uh, because I'm convinced that no one cares. Okay. Uh, even though our listeners keep telling us otherwise, Hey, if you're part of the, what I'm con- convinced is a silent majority, um, who doesn't care, please speak up. So, uh, uh, I can be vindicated unless it's true that people actually want to hear about this. Uh, for people who don't know, um, we do, uh, we do this thing that Tyler started mostly on his own. Um, Scott and I uh, worked worked uh, okay. on it together. Uh, maybe yeah, I guess I didn't know Scott as well back then. Right. So I just thought of it as Tyler's thing. Um, where uh, much like fantasy sports, you pick a team before award season starts, um, where you have one uh, person or film per category, right. um, and the categories are. Let me see if I remember all of them. Okay. There's yeah, 11 we, been total, yeah. right? It's a uh, picture director, actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, um, cinematography, editing, um, uh, score, catch all and flex in the flex. Well, and then position. there's the two screenplays as well. Oh, two screenplays is more than I thought. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Ed, original screenplay and adaptive screenplay. Uh, and so we, p- people who don't know, we pick, uh, teams at the beginning and then you get awarded points decided on by scott and tyler i guess how many points are right uh how which awards are uh included and how many points uh belong uh are assigned to each award and as nominations and awards come through throughout award season your team uh you know rises or falls on the uh on the winds of fate um <laughs> sure and uh you can also make trades and stuff and i yeah so the the second reason i want to talk about it is because i'm doing terribly this like laughably bad this year i'm like you have Billy more Blinton than for a lot of stuff. i'm more than 20 points behind the next person which might be me by the way it may be like, but everyone else has left me in the dust um but yeah that's one of the most fascinating things about this award season um and this is something I've, this is only the third year I've done it. You guys have been doing it five years, I think. Um, I think you did two before. I yeah, did. this is our fifth. 
uh, this is the third year I've done it and I've, it has made me pay more attention to things that I wouldn't have before. Yeah. Such as the fact that, uh, before Billy Lynn premiered, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk was considered one of the contending films of yeah. the year. And then it premiered and everyone hated it. And, um, Sony has done effectively no, uh, for your consideration, yeah. um, push for it. It's on their, uh, for your consideration website, but there's nothing, they're not doing any screenings. I don't know if anyone's gotten screeners. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and yeah, I am, uh, I, I have Billy Lynn for three categories. I had it for one for supporting actress. Um, but, the, but I think everybody had it for something. Yeah. Probably. And so our trade, our trade situation is this, that trades happen at like it happened 10 p.m. December 1st. That was the deal. That was when trades open. Literally, when it switches from 9.59 to 10 p.m., uh-huh. that's when the emails just start flying. And basically, it was just, how quickly can we all sell our stock of Billy Lynn? Um, yeah, except I didn't do that because I have it in categories where there's not enough it's a narrow field. It is this year. So, and so there's not anything that I feel is worth because like, it costs you five points to do a trade. Yeah. And so far there's not anything that I really feel confident is going to get me back more than five points. You know, I'll say this, uh, that isn't already taken is, is the problem. I'm kind of, I, we have, uh, made various awards worth fewer points. So part of me feels like if we're going to do that, we should lower the amount of points that a trade costs. I don't know. As long from, as it's across from, the board, from it's five fine. to three, uh, I think would be my preference. But I, what I'm saying is, is it, it's five points for a trade for everyone. So yeah, yeah. Even if it's 20 points for a trade, it's going to even things out. Right. Because everyone's paying the same 20 points. In, back yeah that's true i just but i guess what i mean is that like you know if you make a trade and you get something that only gets you one or two nominations then it probably wasn't worth the points of the trade um yeah you know and i've made um a couple of trades that i'm starting to worry uh i made one trade that is good that i'm gonna be solid with i traded i had aaron eckhart for best supporting actor for bleed for this which is not something that's getting anything and i traded him for ben foster for best supporting actor you're gonna do for hell or high water that's gonna be great but then i also uh traded for vigo mortensen for best actor for captain fantastic because i saw him get a few and he was doing better than what i had what did Um, you have well i traded this isn't to get in the details in my flex category so i still have joe edgerton for loving for best actor which is fine but my flex pick was fences for editing this is the first year we've had a flex category and i realized i've done it wrong um but uh so i got vigo mortensen and then i traded no one Felicity Jones as best supporting actress for a monster calls is getting nothing. So I traded for Lily Gladstone for certain women, which cause she is getting stuff, but I also worried that that's not going to give me five points back, but there's still, there's still a lot of critics awards to come. So that's kind of what I'm hoping for Here's, uh, is to make up that ground on Lily Gladstone. I made two trades, both in the supporting categories. Um, frankly, at this point, I would like to switch out my best picture, which is loving, which is getting me some stuff. Don't get me wrong, but I have nothing to switch it to every, like you said, it's a narrow field. It is a narrow field. Like they're really as far, certainly from a best picture standpoint, there really are at the moment only about six or seven movies that are being talked about. Um, as we get further into the season, there might be another one that really kind of 
that you start to see more and more. And honestly, and I don't, that's the thing. I don't know if I want to spend the five points, but honestly, Hacksaw Ridge is getting, getting a lot more. Uh, you know, if I had swapped out Hacksaw Ridge, uh, swapped out loving for Hacksaw Ridge last year, uh, sorry, last week, um, like I would have, I would have made my points, you back. Made your points back already. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not, uh, yeah. Best picture is the one place that I'm solid. Cause I have Manchester by the sea. Yeah. You'll be fine. Um, which I think is probably second to moonlight in terms of, uh, points racked up so far. I'm guessing. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I have, what's frustrating. By is the way, I'm going all in on this conversation right now just to get it, get it out. No, to, for like, I really want to turn people off. So they'll email oh, okay. us and tell us not to talk about the fantasy award season. But also I, that said, I am still convinced that you and Scott should put together a post that you can find on the website that explains I know. Uh, the rules and you should do it every year with spreadsheets so that people can start their own leagues. Yes. Um, and, uh, we could talk about it in the comment section. Like next year, please, you guys, please do that. I think that'd uh, be great if people are participating in it. Cause I think I'm sure other people in other parts of the country do similar things, but I want it to be associated with battleship pretension. Sure. So let's, you guys should do that before next year. Yeah. We talked about doing it, uh, last year and we, we, t- we talked last year about doing it this year, but then, you know, I was in school and had a job and stuff. Um, and so, uh, e- so here's what I'll say is that like, I enjoy the draft. I'm not going to act as though our listeners love it. Here's what I like about it. Here's what it, I don't think I would be aware how limited a field it is. Yeah. If that's not a, for this. That's why, you know, people become more knowledgeable about a sport by playing fantasy sports. Like yeah. it, it forces you to pay attention to things. Yeah. Um, and if you, if that's of interest to you, uh, then it can really help. And I've the fantasy award season. I know we call it fantasy Oscars because that's the, yeah. that's the super bowl of the, but you don't call fantasy right. football, fantasy super bowl. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a, it's a fantasy award season, FAS. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's less fun for me this year because I'm doing, I have no chance. Like I'm doing so I came poorly. in dead last the first year and I still enjoyed myself tremendously. Um, cause once you realize that you're in last and that you're going to stay in last, I find it's like, I don't give a shit if I'm in negative points. I'm just going to keep making trades until I get points. Every time something new is announced. Um, it, it won't be enough, but, uh, yeah. And the gen, so we decided on December 1st was when trades open trades close. You have to have every trade in before the Oscar nominations come out in mid January. That's right. And I will say one thing again, this is, it it, it does educate me about like awards cynicism, uh, because not only, well, I guess this isn't cynical, but like the first thing is you come to realize what you know what entire films are going to be embraced like moonlight like la la land like manchester by the sea and then what individual aspects loving is not being embraced joel edgerton and ruth nega are you know so like that's a thing lion is not being embraced the screenplay and dev patel for supporting actor Hmm. are you know uh an argument could be made that Ben Foster is a lead, but that let, he'll do better in supporting. So that's what we'll do along. I with also Jeff wouldn't Bridges. make that argument. 
I think I definitely think that he I think he and Chris Pine are co-leads. They both have arcs uh, more so than than the two cops. Um, and I think that I think, honestly, Ben Foster is the most dynamic character. And I don't know, maybe there's a certain I think an argument can be made that there's a certain fatalism to him at the beginning that he simply follows through on. And so maybe he actually doesn't have an arc. Hmm. Um, but uh, but the one thing, the one big trade, and this is where the this is where the award cynicism comes in. When we did our draft, somebody snatched up Viola Davis for fences for lead. Uh-huh. And then, but, and we do it early enough that we're not quite sure exactly how the studios are going to play things. She won the Tony for best lead. Oh, for right. Fences. Yeah. But she'll probably have a better chance in supporting. So suddenly that was the first trade. Three people, including me, tried to make that trade at 10 PM. And, I think Jason wound up wound up getting her because we didn't. Uh, there was there was literally no way to know that that's what the studios were going to do with her. Um, yeah, and it was it was really interesting. And um, we didn't know that Billy Lynn was terrible. <laughs> we didn't know. We didn't know because honestly, you know, when we did this five years ago, uh, I guess well for uh, whatever. Anyway, when we did this several years ago none of us knew that life of pie was going to be embraced like it was. Hmm. So the fact that it was, and we were all taken by surprise, I think that led a lot of us to be like, okay, all right. Ang Lee is a, he's an Oscar <laughs> yeah. player. Yeah. Fool me Let's, once. Like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think, yeah, shame on us on this one. Yeah. But anyway, so that's all that's, right. So please, you know. uh, post a comment on the website about how boring that was. Um, uh, or if you enjoyed that, feel free to post that comment too. Yeah. Yeah. Do that too. You know, uh, like let's you have a little last battle year. to see, uh, who thinks it's boring and who is interested in it. Um, but everyone should do a league of a league of their own. Um, Indeed. and, uh, you should, yeah, by next award season, you'll be able, there'll be a, uh, a page on the website where you can download the, uh, proper spreadsheets and materials Indeed. to start your own, uh, league. All right. All right, let's pay some bills. Okay, so this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. David... It's Christmas time, and there's no better way to celebrate the holiday season than with a screening of Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, sure. directed by Columbia College Chicago's own John McNaughton. Uh, I haven't seen this movie in quite a while, but uh, <laughs> and once I once I saw that it was of, that it was up on movie, I thought like I should watch that again. And I thought, what am I thinking? Yeah, who uh, says that about Henry Portrait of a Serial? I've seen killer? it twice, and that that is a lifetime. Yeah, of, you're good. Yeah, uh, um, although now I am can, I am actually interested in seeing it again because of the uh restoration and i'm assuming yeah. the movie uh is the restoration yeah. uh yeah so that's maybe enough to make me watch it again yeah it's it is if you haven't seen it it is a remarkable film yeah you have to see it yeah it's i don't have to uh yeah i don't know yeah i don't know if you have to but it's it's weird like horror fans love it and then like fans of drama love it and like character study uh it's michael rooker in an in, a, in an early role that i think definitely defined how he would be seen as an actor mm. for a while um 
critics really loved it in spite of themselves. Like they just, you know, again, I was, so in reference to Siskel and Ebert, you know, they, they, they disliked these exploitative, violent, ugly films, but they both thought Henry portrait of a serial killer was really good because mm-hmm. I think they recognize like there's something more to this. This is a portrait of ugliness, not something that revels in ugliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and it is a, a really marvelous film, but you should prepare yourself emotionally for it. Cause it's, yeah. it's uh, tough sledding. All right. Uh, but there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship. That's how you get the month off. Uh, slash Battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. That's where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Uh, And they're available uh, at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. We use them. We stand by them. Um, But if you use uh, the offer code pretension when you get to checkout, you get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, we uh, essentially teased this topic on the two movie journals ago, I think. Okay. Right? Isn't that how this happened? Or was it two episodes? Was it last episode? I can't I remember. don't even know. Um, but this is something that had come up in, uh, in your studies. Yes. Uh, there was a... I have a bit of an anecdote where I uh, hurt my teacher's feelings. Uh, yes, you told this on yeah. the mic, on the, on the air. On where, the air? as we were talking in class, I said, oh, I'm about to use the term extra textual. And she goes, oh, that's great. And I said, it's probably the last time I'll ever say it. Turns out that is not the case. That, might, that term and the concept might be one of my big takeaways from this quarter of school. Um, because turns out I have been fascinated by, uh, extra textuality. I don't know. There you go. Um, for years I've, I've, I'm perpetually fascinated by the things that people bring into a movie, whether it be cultural knowledge or whatever knowledge of the, the, the filmmaker or an actor or something like that, that is not officially part of the movie, but you also have to know they probably did know, you know, like, viewers don't see movies in a vacuum and then filmmakers don't make a movie in a vacuum. They know how they are. They know how they're perceived and they know how the material could be perceived and they know the, the political situation in which they make a movie. And so there's all of these things that, that inform they, they can inform the way we approach a certain movie, but the movie itself doesn't address it. It's like an elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. Hmm. Well, give me an example of that. All That's right. not necessarily how I was thinking about this. Well, for me, the obvious one is Passion of the Christ. Okay. Um, now, when it came out, some people were saying, 
well, this is obviously anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Other people are saying like, I don't, I don't see that. Well, now oh, that see. argument is, is moot. Like one, something outside the film itself is, is now coming into play in this conversation. And now the, the argument, and this isn't always about arguments, but like the argument of, is it anti-Semitic? Is it not? I feel like now, because we all know what Mel Gibson said, you definitely can't say at, at best you can say it is unconsciously anti-Semitic because if people are seeing it and then he proves it elsewhere Again, it's not in the film. I mean, it is, but like, right? You, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. An external thing. Jesus is, doesn't actually say Jews are responsible for all the wars, wars in the world exa- in the movie. <laughs> right, right. Um, it's that's the director's cut. Kind of um, <laughs> oh God, can you imagine? <laughs> I um, believe there is, is. No, there wasn't a director's cut. There's a cut made that's actually less violent, so that like churches could show a larger audience. Huh. And it's like, well, it didn't stop them from seeing it, uh, as it was. Yeah. So, I see, okay. So I see, I see what you're saying. Something, you know, about the, the, the filmmaker. Yeah. Um, or, that the, was, or the making of the film. Um, I see what you're saying. So this is kind of, I think I was thinking about this wrong. Okay. I was just thinking about what I bring to it as a, as a viewer that maybe I'm not necessarily examining Oh, okay. Do you know, like, because here's why I was thinking about this, because I knew we were going to do this topic. And, um, last night I saw silence, the Martin Scorsese movie. Um, now Martin Scorsese, I know was raised Catholic. Yeah. I was also raised Catholic and the film's about Catholics. Mm-hmm. And I think if it weren't for the fact that I was thinking about this topic, there are things that I probably wouldn't have even thought of yeah. because everyone involved here is on the same page as I am. Yeah. But I'm interested to see, uh, your point of view when you see silence, uh, uh, on the movie, um, uh, as, as a Christian, but not, uh, a Catholic, right. because I think the, one of the main differences between Catholicism and Protestantism is, um, that Catholics don't believe that you are saved through faith alone, that there right. are also like sacraments. There's like a checklist. There's things you have to do. Yes. And I think, that's something that's something that I just take for granted and that I'm just seeing in the movie. And then Martin Scorsese is putting in the movie cause everyone's, we're all Catholics. Here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering how your interpretation of silence will be different because you have a different understanding right. of the nature of Christ and what, like the, what uh, a believer's relationship to him is. But I also know, you know, Martin Scorsese is Catholic. That's, and I guess that's what you I'm know. saying. I also know he's Catholic, but I'm less likely to examine that because right. uh, he and I are on the same page or at least were in our childhoods. Here's a, here's another example along these lines. Um, Dr. Strange. Okay. Directed by a pretty open and passionate Christian. I didn't know Scott that. Scott Derrickson. He went to Biola. He is there. John McNaughton. Um, for those who know, don't know, Biola, B-I-O-L-A, yes. is not named after someone. It is the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Yeah. That's where the name comes from. I find that fascinating. Yeah, and now I, I, I feel like there are probably people that attend there that don't know that. Uh, um, yeah. It's been just... Because it started in downtown. So now it's in La Mirada. But yeah. it started downtown. Yeah. 
uh, in Los Angeles. It's a fascinating place. Yeah. I was also coincidentally just today listening to an interview uh, with someone from Biola about the Jewish old, the Jewish, uh, scholars that studied there in the mm. early days. Neat. <laughs> who, who was the interview? Uh, I can't with? remember. I, 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 it was on a podcast. I could look it up. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so Scott Derrickson, Christian, now that you know that, does that influence the way you see Dr. Strange? You already saw certain spiritual themes in there, certain themes of brokenness and selflessness. Um, and what's interesting, well, I saw themes about belief. Sure. And there's um, that as well. And that the movie seems to advocate for, um, some having some give, I guess, like not being a zealot is the word that sure. the movie is. The movie seems to be anti zealot. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to be, I said the villains literally are referred to as zealots many, yes. many times in the movies, in the movie. Um, so that, yeah, that is interesting. Um, because that's something that I, because of my own bias, I guess I think of that as a more secular point of view to, 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 to encourage, encourage, give, uh, you know, um, cause I remember, um, back when the cider house rules came out, mm-hmm. which movie I liked at the time. And I feel like I probably wouldn't like if I revisited it, but it's been yeah. 15 years since I've seen it. Um, there was some, you know, there were a lot of, uh, Christians didn't like it. This won't be an entirely Christian, uh, podcast. I don't right. think we can, but uh, um, it will not be. Um, a lot of Christians didn't like cider house rules and there were sort of two camps. There was a one superficial reaction to it that it was just, it's an abortion movie. Right. It's, it, it depicts an abortion and is not against it, which like in the culture that I grew up in as a Catholic, like that was, there was like, that was a hard and fast thing. Like, sure. uh, you know, most people think of Dirty Dancing as like the fun movie I carried a watermelon and all of that. But <laughs> where I grew up, Dirty Dancing is an abortion movie, and you're against it because it has an abortion in it. Wow! Like that's that, that's the beginning and end of the conversation about Dirty Dancing. And so I think there was some reaction about Cider House Rules that was just like, that's an abortion movie. Boo to that movie. But what I think about there was something a, like. Um Fast Times at Ridgemont High, would that be considered? Well, that's already R-rated. So. Okay, all right. <laughs> I guess Saturday House Rules is R-rated too, but Fast Times at Ridgemont High is not uh, looking to be a respectable or fun right. or family movie. Right. You know what I mean? Um, like, there's all sorts of... There's drug use and there's abortion, and, like, those might as well be in the same sure. <laughs> bin uh, to to the people I grew up around. Um, but that, then there was the deeper... Um, um, more interesting, I think, reaction against the Cider House Rules, which was the the idea that I think the moral or the theme of the Cider House Rules is that there's no such thing as a moral absolute. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that Christians don't agree with. Christians right. do, do do think there are moral absolutes. Um, and so that's why I, I guess this is a roundabout way of saying that I'm um, pleasantly surprised that uh, Scott Derrickson made uh, a movie that is about not necessarily compromising yourself, but also not, um, you know, sort of blindly dying on the hill of your dogma. Well, and that's the thing is like, you know, if you want to look at it one way, it's like, yes, it's zealots, but it's also like, let's see who are people that are super legalistic and unbending and really unforgiving. Well, Pharisees, you know? Okay. And, but that's the thing. If I didn't know, 
Now, I probably still would have gotten something out of it, both artistically and and spiritually, even if I didn't know that Scott Derrickson was a Christian, but I do. And so I can't help but think of it in those terms. However, there are some Christian writers who, I'm going to guess, don't know that he's a Christian. Mm -hmm. And all they're seeing is dabbling in the occult oh, you right. know and so it's like well first off <laughs> i shouldn't be dismissive i'm but. probably by saying dabbling it's like I'm, I'm maybe i'm whitewashing it's the whole thing yeah but to me it's like it there's the deeper thing here about yeah. belief and about you know uh latching on to something that's bigger than you um that you don't even totally understand that to me like that speaks to me in a very specific way um but at the same time I know that Scott Derrickson and I agree on a lot of things mm-hmm. spiritually. If I didn't know that, maybe I would have gotten hung up, hung up on the occult uh, stuff. And so, like, so I know something that is that is officially outside the text. Although I do think that he's a, a the type of filmmaker that would that is that found something in this material that probably resonated with him. Um, but this, yeah, so that's an example. This reminds me of something that I was thinking about and could, could kind of, I think, I think could definitely play into our topic. Um, cause I want to get your point of view. Something occurred to me this week that, um, basically you and your fellow conservatives mm-hmm. who, uh, appreciate and enjoy art kind of, uh, have to, to a certain extent, be okay with the idea of appreciating art made by people who don't agree with you. Yeah. Right. And I think liberals like myself, maybe take for granted the assumption that the people who make the art that we love probably feel the same way about politics as we do. Sure. And I think when it comes up is when one of them doesn't. And suddenly there's a big, uh, like I read multiple blog posts this week about the fact that, um, Kate Bush is like, uh, came out and supported Theresa May. I don't know who either of those people are. <laughs> you know who Kate Bush running up that hill? You don't know that song? No, oh, I'm not going to sing it because uh, it's not going to help. Yeah, that's not going to help. Uh, it's an awesome song, uh, and yeah, Kate. That's not her only. That was probably her biggest hit, but uh, her music. I actually think you would really like Kate Bush, by the okay. way. Um, but Theresa May is the person who is running England post Brexit and is uh, conservative. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyway, so Kate Bush came out in favor of Theresa May, and there were, like, so maybe not so many, but there were a number of, like, shocked blog posts yeah. from liberals because we're used to assuming that the people who make the art that we love feel the same way about the world that yeah. we do. And um, you're probably used to assuming they don't. Yeah. Um, and that's, an, that's something that's a way that you and I fundamentally approach art that's different. Well, and... Honestly, anytime, anytime that happens, like I saw somebody was tweeting about, uh, James Woods, who is a outspoken conservative. Yeah. Um, sometimes in my opinion, a little too outspoken, but because it's James Woods, I have to assume it's like, oh, this is both charming and sleazy. And you know what? I'll give him a pass, um, in his tone. But there are people who are talking about like, it's like, ah, these things that he believes and all that. And I remember thinking like, oh, and, 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 they, and they just talk <laughs> about like, like, oh, how can I enjoy his stuff now? It's like, oh, how sad for you. <laughs> the, uh, an artist you like doesn't believe the things you like. That must be really difficult yeah. for you. And that's something that, yeah, we, we liberals definitely... Yeah. Take for granted, I think. Here's a, um, but here's th- a thought. Uh, there are uh, liberal artists who don't like 
when their music is played by non-liberals, uh, like certainly like at a political rally, but just yeah. like, or, or just like, a. a, a a radio show host who's conservative at all and just enjoys rock and roll or whatever. And he'll play something. that's like, I don't like the use of that. It's like, okay, so what are we supposed to do? I guess you gotta, uh, conservatives gotta get out there and make better art, make more good art. Sorry. All we have is Ted Nugent and, uh, now Scott Derrickson. And even then I don't know what his <laughs> politics are. Yeah. So, yeah. Not necessarily a conservative. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, that is a, uh, a problem that people who are, uh, this is me editorializing a little bit. Uh, people who are the enemies of art um, tend to be more conservative. Um, okay. uh, I, I, I think that in the current uh, uh, atmosphere, I think that's the way it goes, or at least there's a tendency, I think among conservatives to think of art, like conservatives think about way too much stuff um, in terms of capitalism and sure um there's a i think a an assumption that art that can't uh maintain itself financially shouldn't and i that's what makes me liberal is i think there are certain things like education and healthcare and art that should exist outside the realm sure. of uh profit and business and capitalism even though i am i'm a liberal but i'm not a communist or a socialist i i am a capitalist i believe in capitalism i just believe in more regulation and more exceptions than you might sure absolutely and i think art is one of those things and i think conservatives maybe uh limit art by um assuming that art that can't pay for itself uh doesn't need to be supported by the government (laughs) Right. Which, and honestly, and it's weird because I actually recently took a, 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 a little political uh, spectrum test. And I think you did it. Yeah, well. I've taken one of those. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it asked like, you know, do you think that art should be supported by oh, the yeah, government? That's why I was thinking. And I remember being like, huh. It's like, I think art is important. And I think that the world should be more than simply, I think we philosophically as a people should embrace more than just what we need but also what enriches our lives. Yeah. And that's what art is. So it's like, so that's what I believe, but do I want, do I want to force other people to pay for what I believe, uh, about art, you know, um, especially see, these that, days, see, that's another fundamental difference in how we think of taxes. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about forcing them to pay where I'm like, uh, it's, that's, that's the rent. That's, Taxes are some the rent get, for being American. Some people get charged a lot of rent in in a lot of different areas. Uh, there's there's the rent you pay when you buy something. There's the rent you pay when you own a when you own a house. There's the rent you pay when you make money. There's the rent you pay when you invest money. There's yeah, the rent you pay. We like, need to adjust these things, but like you mentioned, some you know of what this, the rent is too damn high, David. That's what I say. <laughs> some of the things you mentioned, yeah. Um, people who own homes and stuff are paying more in that, but sales tax adversely affects, uh, lower income people. Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't want to be accused of false equivalencies, but I'm okay with some tax, you know, with looking at taxes and adjusting them to make them more fair. But I also don't, I think that's another thing that makes me, I'm not going to say makes me a liberal, but makes me not a conservative Mm -hmm. is that I'm not really that, concerned with an uh uh itemized uh accounting of where my tax dollars are going 
it's the it's it's the it's the rent and we should maybe think in uh uh broader strokes well and i guess that's that's very and i very much care for you know as i said before like uh when i was talking about like trying to go to that uh like milo i almost said ventimiglia different guy milo yiannopoulos (laughs) uh (laughs) no one's no one's blocking the door for milo (laughs) um but uh like i tried to go to that and i was blocked and so it's just like Literally, my tax dollars are going, in this case, to favor one political stripe and not the other. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not good. Yeah, um, that's, that's, which then, that's which, fair. Which then leads to, I'll, I'll bring this back, and then we can get back to the, the subject at hand. Although, oddly, although I will say, the conversation we're having right now, and like these are our political philosophies, these will impact the way we approach movies and it's not just bias like extra textural isn't just bias but like if you know somebody's politics Mm -hmm. when you watch a movie you're gonna see it through that lens if any like if you didn't know that clint eastwood directed american sniper you probably still wouldn't like it yeah but i I do wonder how many i wonder how many people would like it a bit more yeah that's uh, probably there's probably something something to that you know and in that same way honestly it happens a lot on my side as well like there are people who i'm who i guarantee would have loved good night and good luck oh but because but they're george not clooney. gonna they're not gonna go see these george clooney movies interesting you know and yeah. uh i'll still go see clint eastwood movies yeah well you and i are i would say we're yeah the exception uh, but i mean i, I have a most. problem i've talked about having like some qualms about seeing mel gibson movies or seeing roman polanski movies that's sure a, that's a different thing it's than someone thing. i just disagree with i'm i'm happy to see kelsey Grammer in a movie <laughs> even though i dis- i disagree <laughs> yeah. with him I, i'm surprised to see him in a movie but i'm yeah. happy to see him you didn't see neighbors too i did not oh well, he's in neighbors too <laughs> um uh, he was in um x-men days of future past for like two seconds uh yeah i didn't see that one um Um, plays beast but um i think i knew that does he play beast in other movies he plays beast in the third movie and then of course it's all uh like flashbacks it's you have like first first class and stuff and then it's all higgledy piggledy it's what is that (laughs) it just means it's all jumbled up Uh, okay (laughs) but then it's nicholas holt ass over tea kettle I do love that. Um, okay. So yeah, I know um, Nicholas Holt about so, a boy. That guy. That's him. Uh, and so he plays young beast about, about a beast. Yeah. Kind of. Uh, anyway. uh, so, okay. Uh, we got a long way to go. Okay. And, yeah. You know, a short time to get there is uh, Jimmy Pardo would quote somebody else, uh, saying, <laughs> um, but I will say, so let's, let's stick with, uh, with Clint Eastwood because, where this first, this idea, though I didn't know the term extra textual, um, where this first really came into play with me was Gran Torino. It was the first time I think I really was like, this movie is playing on something that isn't, a, that this movie isn't about. It's playing on our image of Clint Eastwood as like the urban Avenger, the Harry, oh, the dirty Harry, you know, the guy who it's yeah. like, Oh, there's, there's people, uh, you know, there are these like punk kids, uh, roughing up people in my neighborhood. Yeah. Not while I'm around. We all know like that is our, that was our, aside from like the man with no name, which he already dealt with, with unforgiven. 
it's just like, all right, it's time for, it's time for Gran Torino to kill all these guys. <laughs> um, the movie made tons of money and it winds up being exactly, it ends exactly the opposite and it ends really heavy handedly, but it's, it's ultimately a guy choosing not to do that, choosing to sacrifice himself, himself instead of killing people. And, and what's interesting is I feel like it, it is certainly marketed a certain way, but he is counting on people's image of him to pull them in, expecting one thing so that he can advocate the exact opposite. Like, and that is, that's, that is the filmmaker himself. Yes. He's laying in those themes directly, but he is also counting on things that are, mm-hmm outside the text of the film, as people say, uh, in academia. Um, and so that idea to me was so amazing. Um, and yet somehow infuriating because I wanted the film to exist in a vacuum. It's just like, no, it's not fair. It's like he's cheating, but But it can exist in a vacuum as well. It can, it can do both. Um, and because yeah, in 20 years when a teenager sees Gran Torino for the first time and has never seen a dirty Harry movie, uh, he or she is still, yeah, it's has still, the, uh, yeah, the, the same shot at liking the movie or not. Um, yeah. And I do think that's the thing is I think, um, maybe this isn't true. Hang on. I do think that like extra textual stuff, it does. There's, there's certainly an of the moment quality. You do need to be aware of the things around you right now. Like, let's go back to Mel Gibson. I watched blood father. Uh-huh. which is a pretty good movie and he's great in it. So much of his character, any number of actors probably could have played it. His performance is great. But when you look at the nature of his character, this guy who's just screwed up everything in his life, hates himself, but is also mad at the world. Like by casting Mel Gibson in that, just the moment we see him, we already have an association with this character and the characters just happens to be written into that. Mm-hmm. Other actors could have played it and it would have been fine, but he probably wouldn't have had the immediate weight um, uh, yeah. that casting Mel Gibson did. You know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Grant Trino because that same around the same time, uh, the wrestler came out. Which sure. Is a movie that's in which great. Mickey Rourke plays the Mickey Rourke of professional wrestling. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and that was a very, that was a big part of the the narrative around the movie. Yeah, like this, a possible redemption yeah. for yeah. That's that's a great example. Another one that jumped out at me is the Darjeeling Limited, which I never saw. There is a scene I'm sure you've heard about it. So Owen Wilson's character has been in in like a, a car accident or a motorcycle accident. I don't remember exactly, but um, and he's walking around. He's got a cane. And his face is like in bandages and stuff. So he's in bad shape. There comes a moment when he un, he's looking directly at the camera. It's basically he's in the bathroom and the camera is operating as the mirror. Mm-hmm. He's looking directly at the camera and just starts like unwrapping his bandages. And you see that he's deeply scarred and he's just like, and you see him kind of just look again at himself essentially in the mirror, but he's looking at us and there's a moment and he says, I guess I have more healing to do. The look on his face in that moment is like the best performance he's ever given. Well, 
timing wise, mm-hmm. he would probably be shooting that roughly the time that he attempted suicide in real life. And so do I incorporate that into his performance? Do I, in my assessment is of his performance. Do I think like, yeah, he, you know, it's a great performance no matter what. And it's, and it's, and it's laudable that he, that if, if he was able to make some connection that he was willing to be vulnerable enough, uh, in the state he was in to let that be shown on screen. Um, but nonetheless, when I watch that scene, I can't not think of a guy who in real life was just as tortured, if not more so mm-hmm. than this character he's playing. And it is, it, the two are connect are completely connected in my mind. Um, and I don't think they're never not going to be. Yeah. You know, uh, the one for me that's like that, um, is a Prairie Home Companion, which sure. I, uh, I can't not think of the fact that it was Robert Altman's last movie before he died. Yeah. Um, because the movie is so much about the ending of things. And in, in at least one case, it's about actual death. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, you know, I don't know when that screenplay was written. I don't, you know, you can't, yeah. you, you can't know for sure, uh, how much of that was intentional. Um, you have a long list there. I do. And we don't have to hit on all of yeah, these. Um, we're not gonna, the, uh, <laughs> and you know, some of these we're, we're hitting a lot of like the controversial figures, you know, Mel Gibson, Clint Eastwood and you know, Robert seven, Altman, Robert Altman, eh. <laughs> uh, but even something like, like Owen Wilson, like doing something that's yeah. really, you know, heartbreaking, uh, in real life. Um, so obviously we'll, uh, circle around to Woody Allen. Um, tough to watch Manhattan now. Tough to watch Hannah and her sisters. Uh, not that he's, not that he's going for anybody like underage and Hannah and her sisters, but just this idea, like the, the way the character, the Michael Caine character is talking about his marriage and how he just wants to like be freed up to like go and pursue this other thing. And the fact that Woody Allen is involved with a much, much younger character, a much younger woman in, uh, Manhattan. And then after both of them is when he went off with Soon Yi, who is, you know, much younger and you watch those now and it just seems like, Oh wow. He was really spelling things out for us. He was like <laughs> the Riddler. Um, and, and it's hard to, it's hard. It's not that it's hard to watch those movies. Hannah and her sisters is still a masterpiece. Manhattan is still pretty great. Um, but that's going to be in your head. Like the minute you see somebody, um, like, okay, I, okay. I was watching, uh, I was watching, um, an episode of Siskel and Ebert where they're talking about the Tony Danza film. She's out of control. Um, <laughs> I don't remember this. Uh, it's it's basically a father whose whose daughter is like now a teenager and is and is you know interested in boys now and he's like freaking out and all that sort of thing and it's it's to the point where it's almost creepy and so they actually say that like you know Gene Siskel says that he said well you know uh, uh, a good movie could be made of uh, a father who has like some kind of sexual panic about his daughter uh, and maybe even has sexual feelings towards his daughter that he's not ready to deal with. And then Ebert says, he goes, well, yes, but that would be a drama. You can't make a comedy out of that. (laughs) And then Gene Siskel, again, this is, this is the mid Uh eighties. So he's he goes, he goes, he goes, 
it was maybe somebody like Woody Allen could make a comedy out of it. <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? Like, and what you're laughing at, like that is uh, an understanding of something, you know, yeah. definitely in retrospect, but it's like, yeah, damn right. Woody Allen could do something out of that. Oh, wow. Uh, just not in a movie as it turns out. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the knowledge that we bring into these can just can change. Like in this case, it made you laugh. You're next. The movie You're Next. Uh-huh. There is an exchange that is funny on its own. Okay. And that is when Joe Swanberg is talking to Ty West and talking about how he thinks that commercials are the height of the medium. <laughs> right. Now that's funny no matter what. Yes. That's funny because the nature of his character just clearly trying to just take a dig at this guy. Funnier when it's Joe Swanberg yeah. talking about how great commercials are. To tie to another independent filmmaker, it's two directors having this conversation. Yeah. Now one of them, is, one of them, the king of mumblecore. Oh, uh, so I've heard. Uh, and the other, the king of the slow burn horror movie. Yeah. Um. And so now that is there's a cheekiness to that where if you know it, you'll laugh harder. Um. But at the same time, I don't know. That's that requires an external thing. Uh. Yeah. for you to laugh to the degree that the director wants you to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at least that one's subtle. Um, it's, uh, not like as much. I really enjoy the, um, Peter Berg film, uh, the rundown. Yes. Starting the rock, but there's that part where he walks past Arnold Schwarzenegger in yeah. the bar. And, and what is Arnold Schwarzenegger? I think he just says like, have fun or something or like, like good luck. Like it's, it's yeah. such a clear, like passing uh, of the yeah. baton, um, that there's no, there is no way that it works within the movie. It's it's right. The, the extra textual part is completely imposing itself on the movie. Yeah, um, I think at that point you could say it is textual. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I want to go. But speaking of things that are on purpose, and going back to what you said about um, Grant Torino, I think uh, one movie where the 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 thing is very much on, on purpose is On Golden Pond. Sure, uh, which is a definitely a movie about a father and daughter who represent different generations Mm -hmm. played by a father and daughter who represent different generations. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, I have a couple examples here. I don't actually have that many, but of, uh, external relationships, uh, or extra textual relationships Mm -hmm. influencing the way we watch a movie like Mr. And Mrs. Smith, for example. Um, when you see, right. That these two, or Gili, obviously, uh-huh. obviously, um, so much chemistry in that but, movie, <laughs> but so many people talked about like the chemistry of Brad Pitt and, J- and Angelina Jolie. And not long after that, Brad Pitt divorced Jennifer Aniston. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well now we know why there was so much chemistry between the two, because it was, you know, it was a real life thing. Um, the external world, like, uh, or the, the real world, uh, imposing itself on, on the film. Let me ask you this. As a fan of Barton Fink. Okay. Knowing what you know about how that movie was written. Oh, that it was, it's a movie about a guy with writer's block written because the writers were trying to write something else and had writer's block. Yes. Does that, I don't think I think about it. I don't Not while I'm watching the movie. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't either. Um, it's usually it's something that comes into play in the conversation because I was talking with a fellow student and we were talking about like 
the the Coen brothers kind of have they for a long time they sort of alternated the types of movies they made where there was like silly and absurd and then more serious but mm-hmm. still having a consistent tone throughout like still being the Coen brothers and then Barton Fink was in there now admittedly it's early so there's only like three movies before that but Barton Fink is in there and it's like how do, where does that fit in and and then like we both said like it doesn't fit in it was never meant to be made it's a <laughs> fluke that was not part of the plan you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That was the thing that they came up with while they were trying to do the thing that was part of the plan. And now it's, you know, one of their most beloved movies by certain people, by certain people um, who were right. Yeah. People who is that were one right. part of the larger conversation about the Coen brothers or is it like amongst very specific movie fans? I, I don't know. That's a good uh, yeah thing to, for the, for the comments, people, where where do you think Barton Fink ranks in terms of not just yeah. I don't mean your personal ranking yeah but when people think of the tiers of Coen Brothers movies yeah like Barton Fink's my favorite but I don't know <laughs> I, I think people think of um No Country Fargo Big Lebowski probably are like the the yeah. big ones right yeah maybe True Grit is is in there too um, you think so I mean I know maybe true Grit, because no of Brother its box or, office it's I think it's huge. Maybe, yeah. But I don't know the True Grit because it's a remake. I don't know that people think of it as top tier Coen Brothers. Maybe. Uh, so yeah, those three. So Fargo, No Country, and Lebowski. Lebowski are probably top tier as far as just visibility and mm-hmm. people. And then the second tier, I'd say, is probably like Raising Arizona, mm-hmm. Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and True Grit. And and then Barton Fink goes under that, along with what Blood Simple. And, uh, I don't know. I was going to say burn after reading, but I'm not sure where people, I feel like, I think that one's probably a little bit lower, but I, people are starting to come around to where I am on burn after reading. Yeah. People are starting to catch up to me finally, yeah. uh, and re- realize that it's great. Well, and that's the thing is like you and I are so in a bubble, um, of not merely movie fans, but like movie nerds. And so to me, like a third tier is like a serious man is in there. But I have no idea if if yeah. you know your casual Coen Brothers fan is aware of of uh, a serious. Movie. And they're probably aware. They know it exists. They've probably yeah. seen it. Yeah, so I don't know if. They, but do they? But do they? Is it like one of the first things they think of? Man who wasn't there is one that gets kind of overlooked over yeah. the years. It's I not mean, part I of the conversation seen it in forever. I've seen it probably. I think you bought the DVD when we lived together, probably, yeah. and I watched it then and that's probably the last time i've seen it i think honestly like some of the, movies like the insider and, and man who wasn't there because they haven't had a blu-ray release i think that's why they're not really a part of the conversation like once mm-hmm. shout factory or criterion or twilight time or something like that like some really good blu-ray company once they release you know grab these movies and release them they'll be part of the conversation again um i don't know okay other things to get to. Yeah. Uh, a big one for me is Roman Polanski and not because of, you know, the thing that he, that he did, although that's part of it as well, but his whole life. Now I would watch his movies and think like, there's a definite, uh, paranoia here, uh, and a definite feeling of oppression by the world around you. You can get that without knowing his life story. But then when you do know his life story and you realize that he was, you know, lost a good portion of his family in a concentration camp, lost his 
wife uh, or wife, right? Sharon Tate was his wife. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, to the Manson family of all people, like it's just. And then honestly, and then yes, he does, you know, he statutorily rapes this girl, which is of course horrible. And then he's basically on the run for the rest of his life. Yeah. Knowing those three things. And while he definitely brought it on that last thing, he definitely brought on himself. Um, when you know those things about him, so much about his filmography makes sense. Even Oliver Twist makes sense. Hmm. You know, just this kid who's basically a pawn in the midst of all these more powerful forces around him. Um, hell, even the Ninth Gate makes sense. I never saw the Ninth Gate. It's fine. It's not great, but it's not bad either. Um, but definitely, you know, stuff like The Tenant and Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um uh, doesn't really fit with carnage, but you know, what are you going to do? Um, although yeah. that doesn't have the highest opinion of human nature. Um, well, I don't have the highest opinion of carnage, so fair enough. Uh, so I have a couple, so I have a okay, few yeah, other, let's, let's run through a few more before we wrap up here. Stuff like Bride of Frankenstein takes on a different tone when you know that James Whale is gay. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, you start to wonder, you start to wonder, it's like, okay, so who does James Whale see himself as Pretorius uh-huh. or the monster? And I would say maybe a combination of both. Yeah, that's probably, yeah. Um, you know, whereas before it's just like this fun campy thing and maybe you could infer something from, uh, about the director, but not necessarily. Um, but when you know that about him, it colors, you know, we, we talked about that. We treaded around this, I think, um, in our Batman commentaries talking about, you know, did Joel Schumacher make right gay Batman movies? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, because you know, with the nipples on the bat suit and stuff like right. there was some, you know, male objectification going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. I, like I said, I tiptoed around it cause I don't know how much I want to like, uh, point a finger at something and say that's gay <laughs> you know what i mean like i, I don't want to be accused of well you can uh, use word you can use words like uh fetishizing or sure, eroticizing sure. or whatever you want to you, uh, you can you can uh intellectualize it if you want you don't have to say that's fucking gay or but I, i'm like all that. for more gay superhero movies <laughs> yeah but you didn't really like those movies no but uh, uh, maybe, yeah, there's just uh, waiting uh, out there for someone to make sure. uh, just a super gay <laughs> superhero movie. I mean, like a superhero movie that realizes it's it's gay. I think, sure. uh, you know, a lot of them probably uh, have a lot of uh, homoeroticism in them. The good ones. <laughs> um, so, OK, uh, I do find I'll say this by the time at this point, anybody who watches Hidden Fortress knows that it inspired star Wars, you know, like that's, it's one of the first okay. things you hear yeah. about, like, it, like amongst the things, the, the trivia about star Wars, like, you know, it was partially inspired by this Kurosawa film, hidden fortress. And so by the time I saw hidden fortress, like a year ago, um, it was so ingrained in my head that I couldn't help but look at it through the the lens of Star Wars. And right. any time that it like deviated, I I got a vaguely negative response where I was like, "Well, that's not right." And I thought, "No, shut up! It's not actually Star Wars. <laughs> right. uh-huh. it, it inspired funny. Star Wars." Like, 
And by the way, it came out year like two decades before. Stop demanding it be this other thing. Yeah. Uh, but that's the thing. So for so many people at this point, they see Star Wars first, and then if they ever if they ever see Hidden Fortress. So let's. Uh, I, I want to work toward wrapping up with a with a question. Okay. Which is. To what extent should we, when we walk into a movie theater or when we put a Blu-ray in or, you know, uh, enter our uh, pin on Amazon to, <laughs> sure. to rent a movie, whatever we're doing, when we when we log into movie, movie.com, um, to what extent should we be attempting to divest ourselves of uh, our extra textual baggage? Um, that is a good question. Because here's, uh, uh, here's an example. Um I, my, oops, I've said this before. My personal favorite Orson Welles film is The Magnificent Ambersons. All right. And that's only because when I'm watching it, I'm able to not think about uh, the fact that this wasn't his original vision and that his original vision is gone forever. But once the movie's over and I think about it, it infuriates me. It, sure. It, like, I grieve for that lost footage. Yeah. Um, uh, but I enjoy the movie more when I don't think about it. So is it, is it better to try not to think about it? Or if it is, if we're talking about a grand tween or an on golden pond where it's intentional, yeah. um, are we, are we then, should we think about it? Well, and, and then there's, there's another example where maybe it's not intentional, but thinking about it, makes you enjoy it more. I'll bring up another Orson Welles film, which is Chimes at Midnight. Having now read a couple of, uh, I guess, three Orson Welles biographies, you come to realize that he had a very complex relationship with his father, who was a drunk, but like a fun drunk, but one that nonetheless embarrassed a, a, like a 15 year old Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Um, this, there's a brief monologue, uh, in RKO 281 about this, but, um, it definitely is, uh, it definitely is, uh, something that he was somewhat outspoken about, uh, at, at the time. It, he, so like, there's a story that age, that age 15, Orson Welles was, uh, at some boarding school and he was, you know, already being called genius. He was doing all these amazing things. And one day his father came to visit him and his father was not, not drunk at the time, but just like Wells just saw him as like, this man embarrasses me. And then a few years later, um, his father died. Um, and so, you know, young Orson Welles is just very, uh, very guilt ridden about the way he treated his father to the point where there's a, there's this story about like, um, his father had once told him, I wish I could remember. It's something like when I die, I don't want to be buried or Mm -hmm. I don't want to be cremated. It was, it was like something to do with the body. I wish I could remember what it was. Well, so that's something he told his son. And then when he died, like aunts and uncles made the decision of what to do with the body. And it was actually the opposite of what he wanted. And like young Orson Welles saying like, no, you don't understand. Mm -hmm. This is what, this is not what he wanted. Nobody listened to him. And there was a real desperation in him. It's just like, I neglected my father. I was, I was embarrassed of him. And now I can't even 
see that he's buried or not buried the right way, whatever it is. Okay, so now let's. I have look. so many thoughts about that that I don't want to get in a tangent, but like I, that's a thing about people's wishes for what happened to them after they're mm-hmm. dead. I think it's okay to ignore them. I think because really the things that you do to a dead body after it dies is not for that person. It's for the surviving, yes. Yes. surviving people. Um, not to tell you know, not to go too far and personal. My grandma didn't want awake. She said she didn't want awake. Mm-hmm. She died. They essentially had my family essentially yeah. had a wake for her because it was part of the grieving process and yeah. made it made my family feel better to have it wasn't a technical wake, but it was essentially a wake. Um, and I don't feel bad about that. So I have yeah. on the one hand, because I have read Jessica Mitford's American way of death and I have very strong feelings about how predatory and scummy mm. uh, the, the funeral industry in this country is. I have strong feelings about what I hope happens to my body after I die. Sure. But I also know this is, this is not for me. Whatever makes Natalie feel better because I will certainly die before she uh, does. No, no doubt about it. <laughs> no doubt about it. Cause I will murder you. Um, anyway, yeah. I went off at a tangent, but you hit on just a, 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 a bet noir for me. No, that's what I want to try and do is here's what I would want to do. I want to make my wishes clear in case there's a fight. Oh, I see. Like, if my mom wants one thing and Jen wants another, I so want, I want my wishes out there and I want to coordinate with Jen. In this situation, you're dying young because your mom's still around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> undoubtedly. Like there's obviously, right. You know, I mean, my, my dad's mom is still alive and kicking. She's going to be around for probably another decade or so. Maybe yeah, she's more. probably going to be one of the ones arguing about what to do with you. Exactly. Body. <laughs> there's an, Oh, great. You know, uh, another country heard from, as they say. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so then we get chimes at midnight where Wells plays Falstaff. Uh-huh charming charismatic drunk as hell and somebody who is fun for young prince uh, hal but eventually starts to embarrass him and eventually hal says what is it? i know thee not old man is that a thing that he says um i've never seen the movie oh okay talk about um, this and you should so, know this by now what was that you should know this by now i have not you seen, seen it? oh okay uh you will love it uh, i'm sure but and, and ultimately Falstaff. I got to watch the rest of the Phantasm movies first. Then Chimes of Midnight. <laughs> uh, it's a call, pro- call back to the movie journal. And probably the Phantasm movies again. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, you can, man, you can just watch those over and over again. Um, so, so then basically, so uh, Prince Hal is going to be the King of England. And so he can't have this, this old man like embarrassing him. And so he says like, get away from me. I don't. I don't want anything to do with you. And then false F essentially dies of a broken heart. So Wells from a young age loved the character of Falstaff and wanted and played him on stage and then wanted to play him in this film. And when you know this about his dad and when you know this about how as a young, brilliant kid, he was just, he, he basically said, I know the not old man, like get away. Um, Chimes at Midnight has so much more weight. Now it has weight anyway, but when you see that he himself, he doesn't want to play Hal. He's already played Hal. 
in his life. He wants to like, maybe if I, I get Falstaff right, oh, yeah. then I will have a deeper understanding of my father or something like that. Let me bring up something else though. Cause you're talking about a movie chimes at midnight that if you don't know that it's probably still a good movie. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Let's talk about a movie that I think that I actually have feel very deeply feel very strongly for, but I think is a better movie or is seen as a better movie because of its extra textual nature. Uh, and that's the crow. Sure. I think the crow is a, uh, often corny. Um, it, it's distinctive, but it's also kind of, uh, corny and predictable. Um, and very the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Somewhat disposable B movie that has taken on this very heavy, grandeur it's gothic grandeur yeah. because it was uh because of the death of brandon lee yeah um and i don't know to what extent that's why i still like it it's also partially that i was the right age for it it yeah. has an amazing soundtrack um many much of which i i would st- i stand by to this day um there's a lot of there's a lot of good things about the crow but i do think i uh, hold it in higher esteem. And I think a lot of people do because it's inseparable from Brandon Lee's death. And I think you hit on something there where you said like, there's a Gothic grandeur to it. If Brandon Lee were in just some random action movie and right. died during the death of that, uh, di- died during the filming of that. Okay. That's, uh, that's sad. And now that movie always has that associated with it. This is a movie where but he, because it's he the crow plays a character who comes back from the dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it just adds something to it. It's almost like, it's almost like he did it voluntarily, uh, voluntarily, like Brandon Lee died for this movie. It's like, <laughs> well, I'm sure that wasn't his choice, right, yeah. but it, it definitely makes everything feel so much more. And because of the self serious nature of the, sh- uh, of the, the, the film, yeah. I feel like it does elevate things beyond what the film actually is. Um, that's a great example. Um, and I'll, I'll bring up, uh, I want to watch the crow again. now. <laughs> you know, I can't do too. Uh, I'll bring up fear and loathing in Las Vegas where the behavior of Raul Duke, which is obviously just a Hunter S Thompson, uh-huh. uh, surrogate. Um, it, it kind of gets thrown in sharp relief when you realize that he kills himself. Uh, oh, yeah, they, they killed himself in, in life. Um, you know, I don't think I've, uh, rewatched fear and loathing since Hunter S Thompson died. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's still funny and it's still like kind of crazy, but you also just feel like this guy who's just like laughing and it doesn't, the, the film does not paint his behavior in the film as like a, as this, wonderful thing. And like, ah, just laughing and having fun, looking and pull a knife on Ellen Barkin. Um, that's Dr. Gonzo. That's not, yeah. um, so it's not that, that it's doing that, but like what he kind of, it leaves on a note of triumph, you know, he's saying like, and just sick enough to be totally confident. And when I hear that, I think like, well, the confidence didn't last that long. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess it lasted a, f- a couple decades. Um, and, and I don't mean to say that as in, in like a, a way of, of, yeah, I told you so you can't burn the candle at both ends. It's not that it's more just, there's a vaguely heartbreaking element to it. And I'll bring up, I forget who it was, but there was a critic who was writing about enough said. Okay. There is a scene where, uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus's character is, kind of in a passive aggressive way lecturing 
James Gandolfini about eating better. Yeah, there's actually and, more than one scene. Yeah, I think there's the guacamole and there's the buttered popcorn. Gra- uh, yes, the two. Okay. I, there might be more than that. Yeah. Those are the two I think of. And in the moment, it's sort of it's sort of like, well, he is a bigger guy, uh, but maybe she's being a little bit too particular, and she does seem to be operating off of what his ex wife said, mm-hmm. and so like she's kind of borrowing her pet peeve about this guy. And then James Gandolfini died of a heart attack because he was a bigger guy. And so suddenly those scenes, it's hard not to sympathize with her and the ex-wife and be like, yeah, they're right. He should have taken better care of himself, this character and the actor. Mm. You know, and I don't mean to say it in a judgmental way, um, having had a father died of a heart attack, you know, um, but it's hard. And I love Enough Said. It was my favorite movie of that year. Um but I, I did read a, a critic who said that that scene feels different now. Hmm. Um, it, it definitely feels different than, you know, than it must have when they were doing it and different than, than Nicole Holof center intended it. Um, all right. What else is on your list? We gotta, we gotta wrap up now. So, uh, not really that much. I will say that, you know, um, when you watch Tootsie and you hear all about like, the constant bickering between Dustin Hoffman and Sidney Pollack. Oh, I see. I I didn't know about that. Oh, really? Yeah. If you know that, and then you watch the movie, the idea that Dustin Hoffman plays a completely unemployable actor is (laughs) kind of funny. Yeah. And that Sidney Pollack is his agent. Who's just completely tired of him. Um, you know, you see it differently. Um, we talked, speaking of Dustin Hoffman, we talked recently about Ishtar. Yes. And um, I'm not sure if this counts, if this fits into your definition of extra textual, but like if you're watching a movie that's a notable bomb or something like that, you know, like it's, it's impossible. I've just only ever seen Ishtar, but it's impossible for me to watch Heaven's Gate in a vacuum and not watch it as sure. like, this is the movie that brought down United Artists and that yeah. uh, for, you know, um, one of the movies anyway. Um, uh, and, and like, it's me saying like, uh, let's see if it was, you know, prove to me heaven's gate that you were worth all of this money and time. Yeah. Uh, it's impossible for me to not have some of that. Well, and that's actually, that's similar to, and I'm fine with going out on this. Um, anytime people are talking about the winners of best picture, almost invariably they will say like, Eh, it wasn't that good. And she's like, it's as good as it was ever going to be. But because someone, uh, a number of people decided that it was the best movie of the year, you can disagree with that, but the film itself hasn't changed. Yeah. Only it's social. It's, it's cultural standing. Well, there's also, um, sometimes there's the films. So a film will win, win best picture and be thought of less because the other film that was better didn't win. Yeah. I remember when I used to write lists for the quietest, uh, uh, com, whatever, uh, their, uh, affiliation.com.org.co.uk, whatever it is. Dot gov. Um, it might be .co.uk cause they are a British website, but I can't remember. Um, I did a list and it was like half jokey about like the worst best picture winners. Mm-hmm. And I put one of the worst best picture winners as was how green was my Valley. Not because there's anything wrong with it, yeah. but just because citizen Kane didn't yeah. win that year. I of course I would always, I always get so much, uh, blowback in the comments over at the quiet. When I wrote the quiet, I mean, that's why they stopped asking me to write uh lists for them. But, um, 
Hey, that's clicks. That's uh, engagement. I, uh, uh, you know. Oh yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe no I such should, thing as bad publicity. Uh, list more. Maybe I should write more stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, so there are movies like that that will always be thought of as, um, like I mean, Shakespeare and Love to some extent. I don't. I don't know how well it holds up. I haven't seen it in forever. Great. But, uh, really? Yeah. Having just seen Miss Sloan and hating it, I felt like I, I, part of me is like, well, John Madden probably never oh, made a good movie. Well, it didn't win Best Director. Um, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, that's we were talking about that in in class today, actually, about Shakespeare and Love and Saving Private Ryan, and then like. Dances with Wolves is a damn good movie. It's only crime is that it's not Goodfellas. Oh, I see. Yeah. It won picture and people are like, what a terrible best picture. And it's like the movie hasn't changed. Yeah. The movie is not, the, there's nothing, there's no subliminal message saying Goodfellas sucks. We're better. <laughs> that was a designation by the Academy that wanted to make itself feel better by having this like pro native American movie uh, as opposed to this incredibly violent gangster picture, you know? And so, and it's the same, honestly, I like, I love, I love ordinary people. It's a very good movie. A little turgid at times as to be expected. Yeah. It's big crime is that it's not raging bull. Oh, right. Yeah. How green was my Valley? It's one crime is that it's not <laughs> citizen Kane. And by the way, uh, all but one, uh, every movie, but one is guilty of that crime. Yeah. Um, is Raging Bull and Ordinary People the same year as The Elephant Man? Yes. There were two black and white uh, Weird, movies. Right? That were, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Obviously, Raging Bull's uh, great. But when you said Ordinary People, I was like, oh, yeah. It, the Elephant Man didn't win. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, obviously. I uh, forgot I whether they were the same year. And I personally don't love Raging Bull um, just because, like, I don't like spending time with these people. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's hard. Uh, I've watched, I've rewatched that one fairly recently. It's a great movie, but it is hard hard yeah. to watch. Um, and so like anytime you're having that conversation, you're bringing, you know, it's, and maybe I'm, maybe I, I think it's possible that my, uh, my use of extra textual is a little bit too broad. Um, eh. but in my view, it's like, it's anything, any bit of knowledge that you bring to the movie that colors the way you look at the movie, either it's quality or interpretation or whatever it is. Um, but it's, you know, frankly, I'm just happy this is something I've been thinking about for years and I just didn't know there was a name for yeah. it. Yeah. And you had to insult your teacher to, to get through it. Yeah. I hope you apologized. It, did you, did you, I apologized after class. Did yes. you bring her an apple? Uh, no, I gave her a, a 50. <laughs> there you go. Um, but, um, I like them apples. <laughs> well, we got to end on that. Okay. Okay. Glad. Uh, you can find us at battleship com. You can email us at David at battleship com or Tyler at battleship com. Uh, but if your comment is about um, Coen Brothers rankings or whether or not you care about the fantasy award season discussion, uh, don't email us. Put it on the website. We prefer that uh, uh, on the comments. Um, what else is going on? I'm on uh, Twitter at Davey Pretension. Tyler's on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have another podcast. You have two other podcasts. Yeah, uh, worth playing for. A lot of great stuff happening on Survivor right now. Check it out. Um, More than one lesson, I actually did not record an episode this week just because I was writing that paper and I didn't have time. So, uh, but now, now that I'm done with my uh, quarter, and then it's looking like my schedule next quarter will allow me to kind of get back on schedule when it comes to podcasting. All right, and uh, I should get back to doing hey watch this uh a new you should a I new agree. version of hey watch this 
in the in the new year i think is when that will happen okay so um yeah watch this space as as it were uh thanks for listening we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.